Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And I'm going to bring you guys a little bit of a rerun today. I am trying to get some stuff put together for a special series of episodes as well as prepare for some other stuff. So great things are right around the corner. I did not want to leave you without an episode at all. So we're going to listen to this one that originally published on October 18th, 2018. And it kind of goes in line with some other stuff we've been covering in recent episodes of Tech Stuff. This episode was titled, Could We Make a Sarcastic Supercomputer? And uh, yeah, it really dives into the whole concept of artificial intelligence natural language, and just kind of understanding the quirks of what it is to be human and the whole concept of sarcasm. Hope you guys enjoy it. I mean that without even a hint of sarcasm, and I'll chat with you after the episode. Today, I want to talk to you about an interesting topic that I got to explore a couple of years ago with Joe McCormick and Lauren Fogelbaum as we debated the possibilities of computers learning how to understand sarcasm. We did it for a podcast called Forward Thinking, which was around for a couple of years. It was a lot of fun to work on that. That show uh, is over, but I thought I would revisit the topic and talk about it for you guys and kind of go over what would it take to have a computer that could actually understand when someone's being sarcastic. Now, to understand why this is a big deal, it helps to have a refresher course on how computers process information. And I know I talk about this a lot, but I still think it's important to cover the basics when you want to talk about something as advanced as being able to detect and understand sarcasm. So, computers understand machine code or assembly language. This is a language that corresponds with the actual physical architecture of the computer. So the way the computer is built, that's how this language interacts. It's, it's essentially how the physical components of the computer are able to handle uh, electric current or voltage differences in order to process information. And computers can interpret this and execute upon this language very quickly. It is the basic language of those physical components. However, it is almost impossible for humans to work with this, at least on a way that is at all efficient, because it uh, ultimately, for most computers, boils down to binary language, right? Zeros and ones. So you see a huge block of zeros and ones, and unless you are Neo from the Matrix, it means nothing to you. So we speak in natural language to one another. Natural language, however, is filled with a lot of components that make it very, very challenging for machines to interpret, like ambiguity. Or there might be double meanings in a phrase, and you may mean both meanings at the same time. And that is too complicated for most machines to be able to process. They just can't deal with that. So to bridge the gap between the way we humans communicate and the way that computers process language, we have created programming languages and compilers. Now, programming languages fall into two broad categories. It's more like a spectrum 
and you could be further on one end than the other. And we typically call them high-level programming languages and low-level programming languages. The lower the level of programming language, the closer it is to machine code and the easier it is for a computer to understand, but the harder it is to work with if you happen to be, you know, a human being. High-level programming languages are easier for humans to understand. Now, if you have never taken any courses in programming and you're looking at a page of code, it could seem indecipherable to you. It is just meaningless strings of characters. But once you learn the rules of that programming language, how you construct an instruction and a series of instructions, how you go from one instruction to the next, once you understand the rules, it actually becomes quite easy to use in the grand scheme of things, much more easy than machine language would be. But again, the problem here is that computers don't understand programming languages, not natively, even though this is not exactly the same as human natural language. It's also not the same as machine language. That's why you need compilers. A compiler is essentially a translator. It takes this high-level programming language, or higher level anyway, and then converts it into a machine-readable language for the computer to actually execute upon. And this is all in the design of the programming languages and the compilers. So this is the way that... For decades, we have interacted with computers when you're talking about it on a, on a direct level, not just executing a program, but creating code, creating programs for computers to run. Over the last few decades, we've had some very, very smart people working on natural language systems for machines, which would allow a computer to interpret natural language in a way that would make some sort of sense and for the computer to be able to act upon that language. And we've seen this in plenty of examples recently. Uh, most smartphones have some sort of smart assistant. You have standalone products like Amazon's Echo. You have Google Home. You've got tons of devices that can interact with people. It can uh, be activated by typically an alert phrase, which I'm not going to say because I don't want any of you guys to have to deal with that. I know how irritating it is when I'm watching a video and someone activates their specific system and then mine begins to respond and all my lights start going on and off because the people on YouTube were talking funny. I know how irritating that is, but you use that, it activates, and then you can speak and typically you can say the same thing several different ways and the device appears to understand you no matter how you word it. And this is a real challenge because we human beings can find lots of different ways to say the same thing. For example, if I say, what is the weather today? It could be very similar to if I, if I ask a question, is it going to rain today? Both of those are asking for information about the weather, but they're very different ways of saying that. A good natural language recognition program will be able to parse that information and then return the appropriate response. This is not an easy thing to do. Typically, it involves creating a neural network structure. And I've talked about artificial neural networks recently. Uh, that's a typically a, a network that can accept multiple binary inputs so either a zero or a one input that represents something. 
some sort of yes, no, or on off kind of feature. It can accept multiple ver- multiple uh, inputs of that nature. So multiple zeros or ones that all factor into making a decision. And then it has a weighting for each of those components. And then it produces a single output that's also binary in nature, either a zero or a one. And it passes that on to other artificial neurons further down the chain. Sometimes that will come back around and you'll have a recursive artificial neural network. The goal here is for this process to ultimately result in a response that is reasonably certain to meet the requirements of the person asking the question. Uh, this tends to be talked about in the realm of probabilities. We, we talk about how certain the machine is that the response is the appropriate one. And if it falls below a certain threshold, then the machine would typically respond with, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're asking for or something similar to that. Uh, there are cases where you just get misinterpreted and you'll get a response that does not reflect whatever you asked. That's a little different. That's where the machine has drawn a conclusion, has been reasonably certain that it came to the right conclusion. And it turns out it was wrong the whole way. But that's the process. Now, when it comes to sarcasm, that adds yet another layer of difficulty because now a machine isn't just parsing what you are saying. It has to understand what you mean. The meaning of your words and the meaning of the way you deliver them could be different. So if I were to just write out a phrase with no tone, no body language, uh, not emphasizing any one word over another, it might be very difficult to detect what my intent was. It may seem like I'm being sincere when in fact I'm being insincere, for example. Uh, for ex- If I were to say, that guy is super tall, but I'm being sarcastic, then it, just in that phrase, the way I write it out, you would think, oh, well, that person he's looking at must be super tall. How do you recognize sarcasm? How can you detect that this is in place and then understand what the meaning underneath it is? One of the approaches that has been put forward relates to IBM's Watson platform. Now, Watson first made headlines back when it was a contestant on Jeopardy. It went up against two former champions, including Ken Jennings, who shows up on a How Stuff Works podcast. Anyway. Watson went up against these two former champions, and it was able to interpret natural language. It had to in order to play the game of Jeopardy. And for those who do not know what Jeopardy is or are not familiar with the game show, Jeopardy is a game where you are presented with categories of trivia, and each category has multiple uh, questions or multiple uh, entries in it, and they range in uh, dollar value. And the lower dollar value ones are easier to answer than the higher dollar value ones. And uh, you're typically, the, the way Jeopardy works is that you're, you're given, quote unquote, the answer, and you have to provide the question. So uh, if the answer were this film that detailed the adventures of a young playwright in 16th century England, one best picture, you would say, what was Shakespeare in love? 
So this computer is playing against these two former champions. This was sort of an exhibition series of games. It wasn't meant for uh, a, a competition in the way the typical Jeopardy games were. There was money on the line, but it was an exhibition. And Watson won. It beat both of the champions. And it did what I was telling you. It, it would analyze the clue that was given, the answer that was given. It would try and generate a question to correspond with that answer. And only if the question met a certain threshold of confidence would Watson buzz in. If it did not meet that level of confidence, Watson would remain quiet. And most importantly, Watson was not at all connected to the internet. All the information was contained within a massive series of servers. There was more than, gosh, I can't even remember. There was a ton of processors attached to it. Um, so a very powerful machine. But it still wasn't exactly uh, able to detect sarcasm. It could work with wordplay, and it could work with riddles. So that was really impressive. But what it really did was it gave IBM the opportunity to say, we have this platform here, and we're welcoming developers to create applications that tap into this platform and make use of this in order to do interesting stuff with it. And IBM was largely working with the medical industry at that point to try and help doctors treat and uh, diagnose patients. And it was sort of computer guidance. It wasn't that you had an automatic doctor, but rather the doctor had what equates to a medical expert to confer with when trying to determine what is the best course of action for a patient. IBM put up an application program interface or API and let developers create their own cognitive computing applications built on top of Watson. One of those was called the Tone Analyzer. It still exists. Uh, back when we were doing this episode for Forward Thinking, it was in the form of analyzing some text and telling you whether or not that text would come across as agreeable or argumentative or positive or negative. And it would assign tone to those pieces. I'll explain more about how it did and what it did in just a minute. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So how did this tone analyzer work? It would search for cues in any written text social cues, written cues, emotional cues, in order to determine the overall tone of a piece, which actually meant that the analyzer would tag individual words within a text, words that it recognized and had already pre-labeled as falling into various categories. So words that might have a positive meaning, like happy, glad, joy, things like that, those would get tagged as cheerful. But then it would then assign uh, all the individual words tags and then tally everything up. So let's say you've got a bunch of sentences and it starts individually labeling certain words as being cheerful or sad or angry or helpful. And then it adds it all up and then would give you a percentage. So a message might be 78% agreeable or 34% conscientious. You would actually get multiples of these. And that would just really indicate the density of those types of words within the message itself. Now, 
in an ideal world, if language were very simple to understand and interpret by machines, this would help you gauge how people would respond to your work, right? So you could write a message before you send it, you put it through the tone analyzer, and it tells you what sort of a tone you are setting. So if you wanted to create a business letter, you could send it through this tone analyzer. And if it came back as saying it's coming across as, as uh, indecisive, you might want to go back in and edit that message so that you can make a more straightforward and uh, decisive message and not give the wrong impression before you send the message out to your actual human recipient and come up with alternate word choices in order to make sure that your message is received the way you intended it. And anyone who has communicated over the internet can think of ways that this might have been helpful in the past because, again, language depends on so many different elements to get your meaning across. And when you reduce it to the written form, especially the written form online, where we tend to be very short with our, our communication. It comes in very quick bursts, a couple of sentences here or there. We lack all that body language. We lack that tone. It's very easy to misinterpret. I'm sure there's been an example in your life where either you got offended from receiving something that was meant in a way that was different from the way you, you interpreted it, or the reverse happened, where you sent a message and somebody had a reaction you did not anticipate because they could not tell what tone you were using just from the words you were using. Machines have that same problem. Now, in the future, an analyzer like this tone analyzer could be incorporated into word processors or email servers or you know, email services, I should say, or social media platforms. So you start typing in your message and before you hit publish or post or send, you could analyze that text. It could tell you what the tone is. And then you could say, "Ooh, no, that's going to come across totally the wrong way. And you could actually fix it before you posted it or sent it. And then you wouldn't have that awkward decision of whether or not to edit something or in the case of Twitter, which continues to refuse to allow you to edit tweets, to delete a tweet. I deleted a tweet the other day when I posted uh, a link to a news story and I had done a rookie mistake, one that I, I try to avoid, but I, I did it this past time, which is that I didn't think to look at the date when the news item had been published and it had been published a full year earlier. So it was not new news. It was old news. And uh, I then deleted the tweet and it wasn't up for long, but I still felt dumb about it. It would have been nice to have been able to check that. Although that's not tone, obviously that's, but similar in the, in the idea that you want to check before you end up offending someone, unless you're one of those jerk faces that just sets out to offend people. In which case, rethink your strategy. There are better things to do. It's just as you can make just as big an impact being a positive person as you can being a jerk face. Uh, I know it can seem like it's more work, but it's also more rewarding in the long run. Okay, soapbox done. So there is a demo of the tone analyzer that's available online. And back when we were recording forward thinking, the demo worked in a way where it would tell you about emotional tone and break it down by percentage. It's a little different now, but I want to tell you the, the what words and the results we got in the past because they were so much fun. Uh, granted, you would get a different result now because the tone analyzer has been tweaked since we recorded that episode. So when we recorded that episode, uh, one of my 
co-hosts, decided to put a sentence that is somewhat known in literary circles into this tone analyzer and find out what it said. And the sentence used was, It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Now, the analyzer said that this emotional tone was 97% cheerful. The social tone was 76% open and 51% agreeable. And the writing tone was 95% analytical. You can also view the sentence in terms of word count as opposed to the weighted value of individual words. And using that view, 5% of the sentence uh, sentences were uh, in an emotional tone, 89% in a social tone, and 5% in a writing tone. Now, the analyzer highlights each word according to how it classifies them. So emotional words would be highlighted in red or pink in that older version of the tone analyzer. Social words would show up in blue and writing tones would be in green. And you could click on any word and the analyzer would offer alternative words that you might want to use and classify those words in the tones that they are associated with so that you could shape your message to meet the tone you wish to convey. Also, the tone analyzer demo used the uh, business letter format as the means of comparison. So, in other words, we compared Jane Austen to a business letter. Presumably, if you were to use a full version of the analyzer, not just the demo version, you would have other options. So you could compare it with uh, other models, not just a business letter. Joe McCormick, he included an excerpt from uh, Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. That excerpt was, I could not become anything, neither good nor bad, neither a scoundrel nor an honest man, neither a hero nor an insect. And now I am eking out my days in my corner, taunting myself with the bitter and entirely useless consolation that an intelligent man cannot seriously become anything, that only a fool can become something. The feedback was that the emotional tone had anger at 100%, cheerfulness at 97%, so happy anger, negative at 100%. The social tone was 42% agreeable, 0% conscientious, 0% open. The writing tone was 100% analytical, 0% confident, and 89% tentative. Joe would actually end up highlighting some of the words to find out which words were the ones that ended up giving that 97% cheerfulness result. Those four words were good, honest, hero, and intelligent. And that kind of are, that, that's important because those words, the way they are used uh, in that passage are not used in a positive sense. They are positive words, but they're meant to show kind of a negation there, not and not a assertion. So that really highlights a big problem in this tone analyzer, which is that it's tagging these words individually without context. So if I wrote the phrase, I am not glad, it would tag the word glad and say, that's a cheerful word. But I said, I am not glad. You, if I told you, I am not glad, you would not think, oh, well, that's a cheerful thing to say or a positive thing to say. But according to the tone analyzer, it would come across as a cheerful statement because it had tagged that word as, as being cheerful and the other words are not that strong. They don't, they don't warrant being tagged in a way like that. Now, over time, we might have a tone analyzer that can actually take context 
into account. And then you would learn a lot more about the actual meaning behind a phrase. It would be more than just tone. So if you were trying to get across tone by using more complicated and subtle word choice, where you're sort of being kind of uh, poetic in your expression, you're trying to get across a feeling by using irony or sarcasm, then a tone analyzer like this would totally miss it because it, it would just be counting the hits and not understanding the usage there, the hidden meaning, the wordplay. So that is going to be a real uh, challenge. So it's kind of another interesting use of IBM's Watson. There are a lot of other ones that we could talk about, like Chef Watson, which was my favorite. Chef Watson would generate new recipes based upon ingredients that you would tell it that you had on hand. And it wouldn't it wouldn't go and reference old recipes and pull one up for you. Instead, it would make flavor profiles based upon all the different combinations of food that were found in various recipe books and generate a brand new recipe for you right there on the spot. And sometimes they were wackadoodle crazy, y'all. So in a way, you could say that Chef Watson was another another way of seeing how IBM's Watson has a lot of promise but it requires a ton of work on the app level in order to leverage it and make actual practical use out of it. I have more to say about computers detecting sarcasm, but first let's take a quick word from our sponsor. So back in 2010, there were some researchers at the Hebrew University in Israel who designed a system called the Semi-Supervised Algorithm for Sarcasm Identification, or SAZI. And they used SAZI to analyze collections of nearly 6 million tweets and also around 66,000 product reviews from Amazon. Uh, they wanted to find rich treasure troves of sarcasm it turns out reviews and tweets, they fit the bill. Sarcasm is really, it's typically conveyed in, in some vocal tone, right? And nonverbal cues. So you have to first go someplace where sarcasm is, is rampant in text form to be able to really fine tune how you can identify sarcasm versus something that's meant exactly the way it's written on the surface level. So... They started to map out the various features that were common in sarcastic comments online. So they were looking for things like hyperbolic words. And if you're using uh, a lot of exaggeration, that could be a key. Uh, excessive punctuation was another one, especially ellipses, which I tend to use a lot. Though I don't know if I use it so much for sarcasm as I do for just timing purposes to indicate this is the beat I would take if I were saying this out loud. I guess that's just as irritating, though. Also, how straightforward is the sentence structure? And they gave it examples of sarcasm. They fed it tweets that were tagged, hashtag sarcasm, so that the machine, quote unquote, knew that that was already a sarcastic tweet and could start to analyze it and build out a model for what sarcasm is. They also fed it a bunch of one-star Amazon reviews that had been judged to be sarcastic by a panel consisting of 15 human beings. 
And the system was told it had to rate sentences on a scale of one to five. One being not sarcastic. They mean exactly what the sentence says. Five being, holy cow, this person should write for The Onion. This is incredibly sarcastic. Sazi could identify sarcastic Amazon reviews with 77% precision. Not bad, but when it came to Twitter, it did even better. I think probably because there had to be very short messages on Twitter. This was before Twitter had even expanded to 280 characters, so it was still back in the 140 character days. The precision rate for Sazi for Twitter was 79%. So it was really good at detecting straightforward sarcasm, uh, the kind that a lot of people on Twitter use because you have limited space, so you can't really set it up in a more complex way. But it was also uh, more prone to judging things as false negative evaluations rather than false positives. In other words, it was more likely to look at a negative, a sarcastic message and say, that's not sarcastic, than it was to look at a straightforward message and say, no, that is sarcastic. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, back to Watson, another use of Watson came out of the Milken Institute Global Conference at 2014, IBM showed off some research that it had been working on internally, and it was calling this research debating technologies. This was a project in which IBM was trying to see if they could feed a computer raw information, have the computer synthesize that information, understand that information, at least on a computational level, and then create a, uh, a, a debating strategy for both pros and cons based on that information. So it would take a huge amount of content, like all of Wikipedia, for example. And then on any given subject that would be covered in Wikipedia, it would be asked, form an argument that is in favor of or is against a concept, whatever that concept might be. John Kelly of IBM showed off in a demo how the tool could be used to predict pro or con arguments about a subject based on a body of information. So you might be able to use this technology in order to anticipate what an opposing person might say on any given subject. Let's say that you are getting ready to debate a topic. You might feed that information to a computer system using this Watson platform. You might feed it a ton of information. And then you might say, who, imagine someone who is against this particular topic, whatever it might be. Uh, let's say it's, it's, it's renewable energy and the, uh, the efficiency of solar panels, whether or not it makes sense to invest in solar panels. Let's say that your stance is that you have to argue for solar panels. You might say, what would someone who wants to argue against solar panels say? And then Watson would analyze this information and return to you what it thinks would be an argument someone would use to support that, that uh, stance. And then you could prepare for that, which would be an incredible tool. I mean, you could think of this as for political debates, it would be amazing. You could think of how 
you might want to prepare so that you can argue intelligently against an opponent and you can already anticipate what that opponent is going to say because you know their general stance on a topic, but you might not know what tactics they might use to support that stance. Uh, maybe politics isn't a great choice because that's not always in the realm of rationality. That often falls into uh, a, a call toward emotional response rather than rational response. That's more of a a commentary on politics in general, regardless of what side you might be on. All sides do this. Anyway, he actually showed at this demo a different example. He said, what if you were to take the sale of violent video games to minors should be banned? That's the topic. And that the computer would then go through all the information it had access to. It would end up sorting out all the parts that were relevant to the discussion. So it would just put those aside and that would become the core of the data it would reference. It would then go through and identify basic statements as either being a pro stance of banning violent video games to minors or a con stance for that, saying, no, we should be able to sell violent video games to minors. The tool scanned 4 million articles. It returned the top 10 articles that were determined to be the most relevant to that particular debate. And it scanned approximately 3,000 sentences from, from top to bottom. And it then identified sentences that contained candidate claims. That would be statements that would either be interpreted as being pro or con for the stance. Then it identified the parameters of those claims. Then it assessed the claims for the pro and con polarity, then constructed a sample pro or con statement. And the statements in the demo were kind of interesting. And since the computer is constructing arguments based upon what people have already written, it would reflect a lot of vague statements that aren't a firm stance. So in other words, like it couldn't take a bunch of stuff that was written that itself did not take either a pro or con stance and then transform that magically into the perfect pro stance or the perfect con stance. Uh, it's dependent upon the words that human beings have already written. So it could not magically come up with a killer argument if the data that had been written about this subject didn't come down on a firm stance one way or the other. Um, the point of the demonstration wasn't to create a tool that could either troll people or counter trolls. It was to show that a computer could be useful to aid in the reasoning process when you are making a critical decision. Uh, again, to go back to that medical example, it could be used to help a doctor determine which diagnosis is the most likely to be accurate for a patient, what, what uh, course of treatment might be the most helpful for that patient, and thus it could have real practical use outside of this more esoteric, interesting uh, debate use. Now, will we see computers in the future able to detect sarcasm just as easily as your typical human being can when given the right circumstances? And I use the word typical reluctantly, but you get what I mean. I don't know. It's going to take some time. It takes an awful lot of processing power too. You have to remember that for these neural networks, systems, the ones that are running these these various uh, platforms and programs and strategies, they take up a lot of processing power because our brains have 80 to 100 billion neurons in them. 
So we have a very sophisticated supercomputer sitting in our heads. Moreover, our brains are insanely energy efficient. They require about the equivalent of 20 watts of power. A supercomputer needs a lot more power than that. So while we're seeing advances in this, uh, it requires so much processing power, so much energy. It is not a practical approach to most forms of computing, at least from a consumer standpoint. You might see a future where this sort of stuff is all in the cloud and then we can access it through an app or a program or whatever. That way you don't have to have a supercomputer sitting on your desk in order to tap into those uh, those capabilities, but you have to have an internet connection, which most of us these days tend to have fairly frequently. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who at this point have had a persistent internet co connection for pretty much their whole lives, which blows my mind. But that's the kind of world we'd have to live in in order to really take advantage of this, at least in the near term. I don't know if we're ever going to see a computer that can analyze, say, an article from The Onion and not only point out that it's being sarcastic or ironic, but also point out why it's funny. I think at one point when you start analyzing comedy, there gets to be a level where nothing is ever funny ever again. But it is a really interesting problem. So that's whether that's that's this look back on if AI is ever going to understand sarcasm. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that classic episode of Tech Stuff. I guess I guess two years old isn't old enough to be classic. That uh, that that only somewhat less than fresh episode of Tech Stuff about artificial intelligence and sarcasm and things of that nature. Uh, I am constantly impressed with how artificial intelligence is advancing year over year. But when you look at what it means to be human and the ways that we humans interact with one another and the ways that we can communicate complicated th things, sometimes just through, you know, subtle methods that are not overt or, uh, or you know, directly spoken. It, it reminds us that machines have got a long way to go in order to really grasp what it is to be human. So unless you're Commander Data, you're probably struggling a bit. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. If you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, I've got a few episodes based on listener suggestions coming up soon. But if you want to get your suggestions in, tweet me. The Twitter handle is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.